Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I am continuing my book review sort of book summary of The Thinking Beekeeper by Christy Hemingway, which is all about getting you started with top bar hives and how the management style of these hives is different to what you are used to if you started, like many of us did, with a Langstroth. So before I get into all of that, I'll do some homestead updates. And let's get the sad updates out of the way first. If you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen that I lost two hens within very close proximity to each other. So the first one was one of my ginger girls in the main flock who I had discovered was thin and had quite a swollen abdomen. It clearly had fluid in it. Now, from previous experience, I have learned that The options for hens with this kind of condition are that I can take them to the vet and I can have the fluid drained and I can pay a fair amount of money to do that and then to put them on antibiotics and painkillers and eventually the fluid will build up again and I will lose them. Or conversely, I can watch them, wait until the symptoms seem to be reaching a point where quality of life is now a consideration and I can gently let them go here on the homestead. And that's what I decided to do. I had noticed that this ginger hen had basically been evicted from the flock mid-morning, and by the afternoon, she was definitely separate from them. They were just ignoring her at this point. It was like she didn't exist. And by the evening, when they all returned to the coop, she was outside. And I, you know, looked at her closely and I could see that she was moving her head slightly oddly and she just seemed a little shocky. And I think that possibly the pain was relatively bad at this point. And so I made the decision that it would be kind to let her go. And as always, I don't do this myself. I just can't physically make myself kill the chickens and some of it it's it's not just the emotion of having to euthanize an animal that you love it's the physicality I'm very worried that I'm going to make a mistake but also I have a weird response to certain body noises and because the kindest way to euthanize chickens is cervical dislocation so you're basically separating the skull from the spinal cord Um, you can just do this by holding the back of the head grabbing the legs and pulling up and back sharply or some people just chop the heads off we do the former And the noise that it makes would make me legitimately vomit. So uh, my husband does it for me. He has a lot more experience euthanizing animals because of his research. And so he, you know, let her go. Afterwards, I performed a necropsy. And I had assumed that what I was looking at was basically internal laying, where they it's exactly what it sounds like. They're laying eggs into their abdominal cavity instead of it moving through the reproductive system, being shelled and eventually coming out. 
that was not the case. Instead, it looked like some kind of reproductive disorder, possibly um, inflammation from a, I don't know, virus or disease. But the end result was that she was filled with fluid filled tumors. They were all through her reproductive system. They had started spilling out into her abdominal cavity. I've actually never seen anything like this before. It was absolutely shocking how much was in there. I also noticed that her gallbladder was swollen and filled with an especially large amount of bile. So it was definitely the right decision to let her go. Only a couple of days after that, I woke up in the morning and checked on Squeak, my beakless rescue hen who had been in the house in what we call the chicken hospital so I could keep a closer eye on her. And I woke up and I found that she had passed overnight. And honestly, that was kind of a blessing for me. Every day since I brought Squeak into the house, I would ask myself the question, is today the day that we euthanize her? And I could tell that she was very ill. I knew that from her body exam, she was extremely thin and it worried me how little she was eating on top of that. But every time I considered letting her go, she was bright eyed, she was making the effort to eat, she was drinking, she was taking her medication, I was putting her on antibiotics and pain meds. And I kept on thinking, you know, there's a willingness here. She's doesn't seem ready. And so I would give her the extra day. Well, eventually, you know, nature took its course. Um, I actually found her when she was still a little warm. So she, it hadn't been long since she passed. And when I opened her up to determine cause of death, it was from egg yolk peritonitis, where basically egg-like material builds up into large tumours or cysts filled with this sort of egg-ish material. It's very unpleasant. If you're familiar with lash eggs that occasionally get passed by chickens, it's an accumulation of egg insides and um, bacteria. It's very unpleasant. And she had two absolutely ginormous tumors of that inside her and some smaller ones that were beginning to spill out. And obviously she was very underweight. And the reason being is that these tumors were pushing and constricting her digestive system and made it very hard for her to eat. I also found in her crop uh, a very, very large piece of twig. And I say very large, very large for a chicken of her size. It would have been hard to swallow and it would have been stuck in her crop. I don't think it had been there long. There was no sign of severe like damage or inflammation within the crop. So I think it was a, a recent ingestion. And I'm not really sure if that contributed to her passing or if it was one of those things where she was drawn to eat it because of the other symptoms and it just didn't help anything. So Squeak is gone and this leaves Agatha, who's my ancient hen, and Meatbutt in the special needs coop. Meatbutt had been unwell, I talked a little bit about it last week, but she's actually been doing really, really well in the coop with Agatha. They have come to an agreement, they're now 
getting on much better than I expected. Agatha is still a little unhappy about the situation. When I open the door, Agatha makes a break for it. She would rather be away from Meatbutt. But there's no fighting. There's none of that. And they roost together. It's fine. Today, Meatbutt in particular looked really good. I think being outside is helping. I don't think I'm looking at a lot more time with her, but I'm very pleased with how she seems to have improved. She's bright eyed. She's walking around a bit more. She's not unsteady. She's eager to eat every morning. She's eager for her treats. She's drinking. She goes into the coop at night. It's it's good. Yes, she lies down a lot more during the day. She rests a lot, but she really does seem to be hanging in there. She seems much more comfortable. So I'm happy to have these two little old lady hens living together for as long as I get them. We'll just take it day by day. And that's the sad stuff. So, okay, done with the sad stuff now. Let's move on to more optimistic and positive things. So firstly, plants here on the homestead are coming up. The corn is about two feet high now. My tomato plants are getting bigger and bushier every day. Sunflowers are about two foot now. I planted borage around the base of one of my sunflower beds. That is really expanding and looking great. It might start blooming soon so that I'm very pleased with that. I've been sweating it out in the heat with weeding and mulching the front beds. They just look so much better. Uh, Just from an aesthetic standpoint, the wood chips that I received as part of that free chip drop that I talked about in a previous episode, it's a paler color. It's sort of a pale tan to red. Usually what I've used on my beds is a dark wood mulch, but this paler reddish color looks really great. It kind of makes the roses pop. It makes the lavender flowers pop. So things are just looking good there. I'm really pleased with it. Um, I'm hoping that what I'm kind of achieving is that sort of messy cottage garden look, you know, big rose bushes, lavender around the base, mint as far as the eye can see, you know, things like that. I'm, I'm hoping that's what I'm achieving. I can't decide how much is just a mess and how much is part of the plan, but I like how it looks. I'm pleased with that. We went out and checked out a new pond and like aquatic store which was really amazing and they had all kinds of water plants there and different fish. I can't remember if I mentioned this or not but we had uh, five goldfish that have been living in the pond and we put a heater in for the winter so they can overwinter safely and we got them through this winter. They were really big. I was thinking maybe this year would be the year that they would have babies And then one day we came out and all the fish were gone. And I think the culprit is this really fat raccoon that I've seen around. He seems to have moved on now, but he was definitely here when it was colder. I called him Fat Fred um, because of his obesity and he just looks like a boy. And Fat Fred, I'm pretty sure, is the one who ate those fish. Now, we thought we'd lost them all. And then one day we saw one lonely fish in there and it was the smallest of the five so I think it was the only one that was able to get away from the raccoon or hide effectively. So we looked into what could be done. I wanted to put a net over the pond. My husband didn't. He didn't like, he doesn't really like how that looks and he wanted it to still be very visually appealing. So we looked into putting things in there that the fish could hide in. We put in some like um 
like a pagoda that I used to have in an aquarium and we wanted to get some plants so there was more cover for them. So we went to this great pond place. We had a great time just looking at all of their water features. They also sell koi and they have some koi there that are like one and a half, two feet long, which is a really old koi. Koi are very slow growing. So we had the best time looking at everything. We picked up some aquatic plants, uh, water hyacinth and water lettuce and two additional fish and they're these little black fish called black moors you might be familiar with them they have kind of the bulgy eyes on the side of their head like little almost like tiny hammerhead shark kind of but goldfishy and black we picked up two of those and they're doing great they hang out with the poor sad remaining goldfish that fish seems happy to have friends now and we were a little worried about whether we would see these little black fish in there but we can and they just seem really happy and so we're delighted and so far touch wood no sign that the raccoon has been back um let's see okay so in pond news last night I heard a frog calling out the front and this is a little unusual for us we have as I've mentioned before, that big kind of swampy area at the back. But, um, so we hear a lot of frog calls happening out back. And this was a very loud strident call happening around the front. So I told my husband and we tried to identify it and we realized that it is a copes gray tree frog. And in hindsight, I should have realized it was a tree frog. Tree frogs are very very loud and they often sound strident and this little guy did so we went out there we didn't put the light on this is you know after dark and we didn't want to scare it away and we tried to identify where it was around the pond and we did eventually find it but the reason I'm sharing this is because we were listening to Cope's grey tree frog calls on my husband's tablet And the frog heard us listening to them and started responding to the calls that we were playing. So we probably spent like 15 minutes playing with this frog where we would play the recorded calls and then stop. He would respond. We'd play them again. He'd respond even louder. It was so much fun. Um, It was just the best time. And I, I really, I don't know, like, having this property having this land having moments like this it's so rewarding and it just reminds me of how lucky we are so I wanted to share that we also had a another kind of wildlife encounter uh Friday last Friday we went on a date we went to our favorite restaurant for the first time in over a year because now we're vaccinated other people are vaccinated it feels safer we had a wonderful night and then on the way back we saw a guy stopped in the road and so as we got closer we realized there was um a big dark blob in the middle of the road by his car and so we pulled over because we thought it was an animal and sure enough it was a woodchuck And when we appeared on the scene, the woodchuck was fine. He was upright. There was no blood. I asked the man if he'd hit the woodchuck. He said no. He'd just seen it in the road. And the woodchuck, in response to us being there, rolled onto his back and played dead. 
So at first we weren't sure if he was playing. We wondered if maybe he'd been hit and now he just kind of gave up and was, you know, in the process of dying. So we had to wait for some traffic to pass by. Thankfully, everyone like went around him. I grabbed a towel that I keep in the back of the car. I keep a number of towels and scrap blankets for wildlife rescue or if I'm transporting a dog and there's an accident. So I grab a towel. I scoop up this guy. He's clearly alive. I can feel his heart beating. He's blinking at me. We moved him across the road into there's a big wooded area and then a field and woods. And we just kind of stood with him for a while and he was fine. Like I put him upright. He seemed a little stunned, but then he just started waddling away. And so on the way back to the car, we Googled, you know, do woodchucks play dead? And they do. So if you come across a woodchuck and you see it roll onto its back and play dead, it might be okay if it's in the road and it could be struck by a car, I would encourage you to move it. Obviously be safe. Use something to protect your hands. You don't want to get bitten, obviously. Uh, But yeah, if you just see it on the side of the road, though, it's out of traffic, you might be able to just leave it and he'll recover when he feels like it. I will say, playing dead in the middle of the road, buddy, not the best idea. That could very quickly go from playing dead to being dead. Real quick, because I know I'm blathering on. We also had Luna, my female whippet. She went to have a dental cleaning last week. I'm always really worried with my dogs going under general anesthesia. There's always a risk, so I would worry anyway. But sight hounds are known for being a bit more sensitive to anesthesia. And sometimes they can have like a hidden condition that you're not aware of until they go under general anesthetic. Like they can have... um issues with blood clotting and they can also have issues with um, hypothermia becoming very very cold their body temperature dropping fast all this kind of stuff so I worry I hate like I hate leaving my babies behind so she had a dental it went really really well she didn't need any extractions there was no sign of disease in the gums or like under the gum line is what you always worry about with dog's teeth there could be a lot of stuff going on there that was all fine. She came home. She gave me the biggest hug when I picked her up at the vet's office and we just gave her some extra care and she's doing fantastic. And I'm so grateful to my vet for taking such incredible care of her. Speaking of puppies, yesterday, which was the 20th of June, was Kaylee, my greyhound's birthday. She turned nine. We've had her since she was just about to turn three. So I feel so grateful for all the years we've had together. We celebrated with some whipped cream in their dinners, which they loved. She's just the sweetest baby. And I'm so happy that we got to celebrate her birthday with her. Yesterday was also Father's Day. So I want to wish a belated happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I have mentioned before that I don't have a relationship with my father anymore. It's been over a year since I have cut ties with him. And actually, I wasn't upset this Father's Day. So that was really good because I didn't have to navigate the difficulty of gift buying and trying to find a card that isn't all lovey-dovey for someone who 
wasn't a good dad. I just got to focus on buying a gift and a lovey-dovey card for my father-in-law, who is a fantastic dad and has always treated me with love and kindness and I genuinely wanted to celebrate. And I think not having a relationship with my dad has made me appreciate all those fathers out there who just are loving and giving and accept their children and want to nourish them and want to love them. And so if anyone out there listening is one of those dads, thanks so much. You are actually really making a difference to your child and to the world. And I appreciate you. It's also the summer solstice yesterday. So that was exciting as well. Um, I didn't do anything in particular to celebrate. We had kind of a busy day. We went to a reptile expo for the first time in over a year. We bought some new frogs. I'll have pictures of those once they settle in. Um, It was just a busy day. I didn't really do anything, but I did take a little bit of time to appreciate everything that we've been blessed with and to look around me and see the changes on our property. So belated happy summer solstice to all of you. Okay, hive updates. And uh, I'm not I'm not going to break it down by hive. I just want to talk about some issues that I've had. I have talked about that queenless split from my overwintered colony and how I don't understand why they haven't requeened yet. So I was in there um I think five days ago and I found swarm cells with tiny larva in them. So what does that mean? That means there was a mated queen in there. And I say was because I found maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen eggs slash tiny larva, period. And I also found a supersedure cell. So from what I can tell, it looks like they did raise a queen she did mate, she laid some eggs, and then something happened to her, or they killed her. And I'm leaning towards them killing her because I went over my notes carefully. And I was not in there during the period of time when she clearly died. Um, And I say this because looking at the size of the larva, and having found eggs, I know that she was in there about three days ago of the time of inspection. I had not been in the hive at that time, so it wasn't something I did. I hadn't rolled her by accident or anything like that. I'm wondering if she was poorly mated and they just allowed her to lay enough eggs to raise these new queens in the swarm cells and in the supersedure cell with plans of hopefully getting a better mated queen for the future. But it really threw me for a loop. And there were so many bees in here that I decided to split this colony again. So I took one of the deep brood boxes, one of the mediums, and I moved the swarm cells to that split. And I left the supersedure cell behind in the original position with the other half of the colony. I went and checked on them yesterday and I, I didn't like what I saw there's evidence that the supersedure cell uh, might have hatched. I don't know if the timing is right on that. So maybe they pulled it down. Um, And I actually ended up merging this colony back together because I felt like maybe the split wasn't the best idea. Although having said that, when I split them, they pulled all those swarm cells down, which isn't a bad thing. So I've merged them back together. It's now a huge colony still. 
Um, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop going in there for a while. So I'm going to give them 10 days without any interference. They have enough brood in there that there shouldn't be an issue of a laying worker developing within that period. If I come back within 10 days, if there's no sign of a new queen, I'm going to buy a queen and put one in there because I'm getting tired of it. This has been dragging on forever. I don't know why we're having all these issues with them. It's driving me up the wall. I just want to get them queen, right? On a similar vein, my first nucleus colony that I made that had a newly emerged queen that I took pictures of, she was all fluffy and adorable. They got rid of her and they started raising new queens, but I have yet to see evidence of a mated queen. I don't know if they're just having the worst run of luck, but they have pulled more queen cells, which are ready to emerge or have emerged within the last couple of days. I haven't seen a virgin queen in there, but again, they have enough brood to hold them over. So they're getting the 10 days treatment. If they have not requeened in that time, then I'm going to merge them to the colony, which was nuke number two and is now like hive number four. I'm going to merge them with that colony. I'm going to use the newspaper method so that those bees can be merged with a queen right colony because I'm just again I'm losing patience and I don't necessarily want to buy two outside queens it's not an issue of money it's more of an issue of I really really want to know the genetics and we're getting to that time of year where it's harder to source queens so that's the plan to make things more frustrating or dramatic in my apiary I went in yesterday and I checked on the nucleus colony that I recently received. It's an Ohio genetic lineage queen. She's big. She's gorgeous. Things looked great in there. And I decided I was going to mark the queen. And as I've mentioned previously, I use this little disc and you just press it over the queen and it just kind of presses into the comb and it traps her so that you can, through the grid, put on the little paint dot And having learned my lesson previously, I followed someone's advice to use a Q-tip for application instead of just using the pen because the pen was just putting out too much paint and I was really worried that I almost killed my Saskatraz hybrid queen. So I get the disc and I put it over the queen and it's big enough that some of the other bees nearby get trapped as well. And one of the bees I almost squished. So I felt bad. I always try and squish as few bees as possible. So I lift up the disc slightly, go to put it back on and realize that I have almost squashed the queen. I I pushed it down and the queen was trying to make a break for it. And I didn't actually squash, squash her, but I was worried that I had. So I pulled the disc up really fast and the queen just gave up on life and she just tucked her legs in and she just fell right off the comb like she was dead and so I'm freaking out she's fallen into the grass I think that I might have killed her and then when I look on the ground I don't see her I spent probably about 10 minutes on the ground on my hands and knees pulling the grass out in little tiny clumps trying to find her And I'm just freaking out. I remembered that some people have talked about doing something similar and the queen would just fly her way up. So queens can't fly long distance without building up their wing muscles and losing weight, as we've talked about when we were discussing swarming. But I have heard that that they can 
fly like a short distance. So I was, you know, I walked through the other side of the hive because obviously I'm worried that I might squish her by stepping on her. And I, you know, look through the frames, hopefully, and she's not there. And I'm freaking out and I'm cursing myself and I can't believe it because I'm having these problems raising queens and then I might have just killed this queen. And maybe 20 minutes has passed, I come round again and I look down and on top of a blade of grass is this big, beautiful, totally fine queen. Oh, so I scoop her up gently. I'm just thanking any deity that might exist anywhere for this. And I put her on the back in the hive. And what was really funny is the response of all the bees around her, because it's right on the top of the frames. It's not where you would expect to find the queen. And their response was really, it just looked like they were like, oh my God, where did you come from? So they're all over her, you know, they're cleaning her. She obviously smells like she's been out of the hive. So they're really fussing over her. And I know I was tempting fate, but I thought, screw it. And I got the disc back out and I got her marked with no further issues. I made sure she was in there. I made sure she was okay. She was totally fine. Closed that hive up and just took a huge, huge big breath of relief and just cannot believe that that happened. So finally, I can hold my hand up and say, my name is Gemma, I'm a beekeeper, and I dropped a queen. Thankfully, it's not all drama and chaos. My queen right colonies are doing well. I'm still feeding the ones that started as nucleus colonies to help them build up. I am absolutely loving my top bar hive. This colony is so calm. They're so productive. Their population is booming. They're building all that beautiful natural wax. I just love working with them. It doesn't hurt my back. It's just such a pleasure. So that really helped me round things off yesterday from all that drama and chaos into something wonderful and beneficial. Moving forward, I need to really stay on top of mite tests. They've been very good so far. I haven't found a single mite in my alcohol wash testing, but we're going into that period of year where it's going to be a case of the mite level starting to rise. So I need to stay on top of that once a month. I'm going to check all the colonies and fingers crossed from what I'm seeing, I should be able to get a small or modest honey harvest within the next couple of weeks. So keep your fingers crossed. And after all of that, I know that took a long time, but it's been busy, busy here. Let's get on to part two of the book review. For my last episode, I covered chapters one through five. And so we're going to start now with chapter six, Inspections. And this is my very favorite chapter of the book. It contains detailed instructions with diagrams to help you learn how to inspect your hive and also what to expect during your colony's very first year. It focuses on the why of it all. So it helps you build a strong understanding of why it's saying do this at this time. Why do inspections? Well, the benefit of an inspection is it allows you to monitor the health and progress of the colony. You can catch signs of disease early enough to prevent spreading to other colonies in your apiary and also to hopefully get that treatment in as soon as possible. And it also lets you detect issues such as queenlessness, which I have been struggling with, before you end up with a laying worker. 
in terms of wax and inspections, I'm going to quote Christy Hemingway directly here. When starting a new colony in a top bar hive, you are the shepherd of your bees wax production. And this is actually something that she said during that talk, which led me to top bar hives. She described herself as a wax shepherd. And I really loved that. It's a very evocative image, but it also precisely tells you what your role is when you're getting a colony started in a top bar hive. Now, keep in mind that you need to be able to move the combs in order to inspect and manage your colony. And so finding issues with comb building early on will make it easier to fix the problem before you end up with combs that you cannot move and you cannot therefore inspect. So you look for what's called cross comb. And this is when bees are drawing comb in areas you don't want them to basically, where they're connecting the bars together, when they're building like almost one big mass of comb that becomes very difficult for you to deal with. So they can draw comb across the bars and then they can also do things like building comb on the walls of the hive so that they're attaching the comb to the sides. And that will be very difficult for you to move a comb out to fix. And as Christy says in her book, a wax problem never gets better, it only gets worse. So really our role is to be vigilant. How do you correct cross comb? Bees maintain bee space, that three eighths of an inch between combs so that any deviations, which is like a curve, for example, ends up being repeated because they're trying to maintain that bee space. And so very quickly, the whole thing can become an absolute disaster for you to try and fix. One thing that Christy recommends is you can insert an empty bar between two bars of straight comb or between one straight comb and one follower board because then it acts as a guide on either side for this new comb to be built. Sometimes, if caught early enough, you can simply cut away the offending cross comb and dispose of it. You can look down the comb from above and if you see any comb that's not in alignment, just slice that off. If the comb is straight, but for some reason it's not attached to the bar, you can remove it from wherever it is attached. So say, for instance, that it's attached to the wall of the hive, but not the bar above it. Just cut it carefully from the wall and then make a sling. So you can use a piece of material such as a ribbon or even a piece of elastic and you like sling it under the comb and then pin the ends of the sling to the top bar to hold that comb in place. Over time, the bees will attach the comb with fresh wax and that will allow you to remove the sling. Whenever you're handling comb in general, but especially when you're trying to correct cross comb issues, you really do need to be as careful as possible and remember gravity. Remember that you don't want to have too much force on the comb. And so what that means is never hold the comb so that it's horizontal to the ground it always needs to be in a vertical position and when wax is fresh it's especially fragile so be careful if you see that the wax is fresh and as a side note how do you know if it's fresh it's very pale in color it's absolutely pristine and beautiful in terms of hive tools Christy Hemingway says that a standard hive tool that you've probably been using for years is absolutely fine, but she personally likes to use a strong handled straight blade knife, such as a roast beef carving knife. 
And she likes this because it works just as well at separating the top bars as it does in removing cross comb. What about smoke? Do you need a smoker? It's always good to have your smoker on hand, but you might find that you don't need to use it. When you open a Langstroth hive, because of the way it's designed, you immediately expose the colony and the bees to intrusion. They are immediately aware that you are there and this can make them defensive. With a top bar, removing the lid doesn't expose the colony because the top bars themselves form the roof of their nest cavity. If you keep the bars together when you inspect, removing just one bar at a time, you're limiting the light exposure and so the bees aren't as aware of your presence and can remain more calm. What I thought was interesting is that Hemingway talks about the microclimate inside of your hive. And so when you open a Langstroth, because it involves removing an entire box and exposing the box beneath it entirely to the environment, it means that you're immediately changing the microclimate within the hive due to the sun and air exposure. And this is less of an issue with top bar hives because of what I discussed above, how you can take one bar out at a time, leaving the colony enclosed in the remaining space. Now, she doesn't go into details about what might be wrong with changing this microclimate, whether it's going to affect anything long term. But I think it's an interesting thing to consider, especially in terms of whether your hive or whether your colony, sorry, becomes defensive. And as a personal anecdote, I have found that my top bar hive colony is incredibly docile and they barely even look at me when I'm in there. And this could be because they're Italian bees, which are famous for being exceptionally docile, or it could be because of the style of hive, or it could be a combination of both. But either way, I have noticed much less interest in me basically no defensiveness whatsoever and I rarely if ever have to use smoke with this colony and if I do it's just to help the bees go back down when I'm trying to put two bars back together without squashing anyone. Hemingway recommends that you keep a bee log and she actually offers a blank master copy at the end of the book. So what she recommends you log, she shares that and it's at the very back of the book so you can photocopy it if you like to print things out or you can just use it as a template. Now there are lots of apps and websites now available for people who like to store these things online or on their phone. I personally prefer a paper journal because I find it easier to flip through to previous entries to make comparisons. But whatever option that you go for, it's a good idea to make a record of the date, time, weather, such as the temperature, the clouds, the sunlight, is it breezy, is there a high wind, etc. The number of combs drawn, the number of bars with no comb, what you're seeing in the comb, so eggs, brood, pollen, honey, whether there are signs of swarming, such as queen cups, swarm cells, a very large drone population, etc. Potential queen issues, such as a lack of brood, no eggs or supersedure cells, as well as things like signs of pests or disease. Now, something that I really, really love is that Hemingway recommends tracking how old the hive is in days, weeks, months and years. And 
why this is particularly important will be discussed very soon because she is breaking down management in terms of the days after installation in the hive. And I really like that because it gives such a clear comparison for you moving forward. If you can go back into your journal and say, okay, when I had installed a colony last year, 30 days on, I saw this. You could look at your current colony 30 days on and make a direct comparison between the two, which could potentially help you identify positive trends and negative trends. It's also beneficial if you're using any kind of log book to to note what is in bloom. So I do this every month or every two months. I just make a note of things that I've seen around the homestead. So right now, roses are in bloom, lavender is blooming, uh, a various number of yellow flowered weeds have been in bloom. We've got white and purple clover blooming and so on and so forth. In terms of how to inspect, this is what Hemingway recommends. Firstly, she says, observe the hive entrance. What kind of activity are you noticing there? Do you see foragers returning with pollen? And she recommends listening as well at this time. Is the colony loud, showing that they're potentially irritated or defensive? Or is it quiet with that sort of calm hum that indicates that it's a happy, productive colony? She then recommends that you go to the back and you remove the shutter covering the observation window and kind of peek in. What are you seeing there? How much comb do you see? Are there signs of cross combing that you can notice? Is it full with bees? Just make a note. Then she recommends checking the debris on your bottom board if you're using one. Are there any signs of varroa mites or other problems such as um, hive beetle larva or gross little things like that? And then once you move on to open the hive, she recommends that you inspect each bar individually, one by one. And now this is the section of the chapter where I think Hemingway really shines because it's all about her very clear, easy to understand diagrams. So Hemingway goes through your first year with a new colony grouped by days that have passed since installation. And for each section, she has a really wonderful diagram so that you have a visual understanding of what you are reading. You could take this book or one of the diagrams from the book and you could go out and have it with you when you're inspecting the colony. And it really just helps you kind of align things in your head and understand what to be looking for. And just personally, I found it so helpful. I don't think I'm particularly a visual learner when it comes to learning styles, but having this kind of direct comparison has been extremely beneficial for me. I have a hard time holding some things in my mind's eye and so it just is very beneficial for me to have something I can look at and even take with me if I need to. So let's break this down as Hemingway does and she starts with day one. You have just installed your bees whether it was from a package or a swarm or a split that you got from another top bar hive. And hopefully, because this is spring, the weather should be mild with highs somewhere in the 50 to 60 Fahrenheit range. As we discussed in the last chapter, in terms of installing your bees, you should have that queen cage hanging from a top bar with a candy entrance. And you can place a feeder in at this time with syrup. Days three to 10, the queen should be released by now and you can remove the cage. 
If she was released by her workers, check any comb that you see for eggs. If she's not been released, you can either just do it yourself or you can remove most of the candy cork to make it easier for the bees to get her out. And at this time, you should see the beginning of comb building. As a personal note, at this time, it was really hard for me to see almost anything because the bees are drawing fresh comb from complete scratch. They're all clustered together around the queen and getting to see whether there's comb there would involve moving aside this big mass of bees. And so personally at this time, I didn't. I made sure that the queen was not in the cage and then I left them to it. Days 10 to 20, early inspection time. So get in there and start seeing what's happening. The queen should be out and laying now. You might see some lava. There's more comb that's being built and you could even find capped brood at this stage. And quick side note, in the book, Hemingway lists things as I am here. So she'll say the day and then she'll list things to look for. What she doesn't do is talk about the entrances of the hive so on this style of top bar hive there are three center entrances and then there are side entrances as well and the way Hemingway recommends that you install bees is in the center with just one of those three center entrances open if you look at the diagram for each section of days she will show you when to open additional entrances so at this point days 10 to 20 on the diagram you can see that she recommends opening the second of the three center entrances weather permitting so it should be warm and I just mentioned this because it took me going back through the book specifically looking for guides on when to open more entrances to realize that she only indicates it on the diagram she doesn't actually write it out specifically moving on days 20 to 40 you should be seeing lots of brood comb now and you can consider adding additional top bars to this central bee bowl that we created you always add bars in the direction the bees are building which for most of us is left to right days 30 to 50 keep monitoring that comb build be that wax shepherd move any cross comb, just cut it out as needed and make sure that the building is nice and straight. Keep adding those bars as you need to. Hemingway recommends that when you add bars, you add two to three at a time. And she also recommends that this period, days 30 to 50, is a good time to check for varroa mites. And there will be more on this in chapter nine. Days 40 to 60, it's continuing to expand. You should see them building all the time. You're also likely to see drone brood now. You might even see queen cups or swarm cells. And this is the period of time where you can open the third central entrance so that all three entrances are open. And because we mentioned swarm cells here, Hemingway handily provides us a little guide about what to do if we see signs of swarming. So you can open up the brood nest by adding blank bars between the existing brood comb. But she recommends being conservative. Don't add more than four bars in this manner at a single time. This could also be a time to split the hive. So if you have another top bar hive or you know someone who does, you can take half of the brood and feed stores and make an additional colony. You could let them swarm 
and use swarm traps and lures to catch those bees and then house them in any way that you can. So you could even put them in a Langstroth. Or you can do nothing. And I thought this was interesting. Hemingway says that this is always an option with bees, but it's not good beekeeping. And I agree. You are responsible for your colonies. So I would recommend that you do try and either split or expand that brood nest. Don't just let them swarm. Days 60 to 80. They should be filling the hive at this point. And your role really is to just keep adding bars and inspecting that comb build to make sure that no cross comb is occurring. And you're also probably getting a feel for your colony now, what's normal for them, what their mood is, how they respond to weather and inspections and so on. Day 70 to 100. This is the time for the mid-season shift. So if you started at the centre of the hive with the bee bowl configuration, which is what Hemingway has recommended, now is the time to move the frames to make more space. So what you do is you move the solid follower board all the way to the left wall of the hive and then you carefully move the bars with comb up against that follower board. So now when you look down into the hive... All of your built-out comb should be on the left side of the hive. Then place the follower board with the feeder access hole to the right of the colony to, to to continue to act as a guide for comb building. And then what you'll be doing moving forward is just adding bars to the right side as before to keep them building in that direction. And this is also the time of year when you might need to use spacers. And these are like little strips of wood that go between the top bars and it expands the area, allowing the bees to begin to make honeycomb, which is thicker than the comb that they make for brood rearing. So these spaces allow for this chunkier honeycomb to more comfortably fit within the hive. It can help prevent you from ripping open that honeycomb when you're doing inspections. And as a note, Adding spaces might affect the number of top bars in total use. You might have spare bars at the end of this and you can store those spares under the gable roof if you have the Gold Star Honeybee top bar hive like I do. Days 80 to 120, you're just adding those bars and those spaces as needed. This is the time of year, though, where you should be keeping an eye out for a potential nectar dearth, which is where nectar in the area has dried up. And this is often caused by extended periods of high heat or dry weather. And so this might be the time of year when you can offer syrup to give them the boost if you feel that they need it. Days 110 to 160, your hive should be close to full now. And it might be possible to harvest some honey, depending on how early it is in the season when they reach this point of fullness. But be cautious. The more honey that the colony has going into winter, the higher their chances of survival. So if you decide to take some honey, maybe just take a frame or two. Days 140 through the late season. Bees are preparing for winter and you'll notice that brood production starts to slow and so the brood nest will shrink. You might also see backfilling of empty brood comb. So where there were babies before, they're now packing in the honey. And then we get to winter shutdown. And at this point, you should place any empty comb on the other side of the follower boards. 
You don't want the bees to have to encounter empty comb during the winter because they won't be able to cross that space. Place the follower boards so they surround the active colony and the food stores. Make sure the honey is all on one side of the bees cluster. So now if you've been making sure they continue to build in just one direction, you're probably not going to need to do this. But if for some weird reason they backfilled all of the brood comb on the left with honey, just move that back to the right. So you want to have the bee area, the what was brood comb, and then all the honey on one side. Reduce the entrances down to just the one and then prepare for winter. Which leads us to chapter seven, overwintering your top bar hive. The most important thing you can do to prepare your colony for winter is to make sure that during the year, the colony drew all that comb in one direction only. You want to make sure the honey stores are on one side of the bee cluster. And I know I'm repeating myself here, but Hemingway really hammer ho hammers home this point. So, the reason it's so important is that bees won't cross empty comb when it's cold and you always want the cluster to be in contact with their food stores. If honey is on both sides of where they're clustering, they could eat the honey on one side and then be stranded from all of the honey that is now separated from them by a span of empty comb. If you keep all the honey on one side, they're just going to keep moving through the food stores as winter progresses. Another important consideration is wind. If your hive is in a relatively exposed area, making a wind barrier can be beneficial. And wind barriers can consist of almost anything, shrubs, trees, fencing, straw bales, or a tarp skirt. And there's a picture of this in the book. And what this is, just to try and describe it here, is using a tarp to cover the lower part and legs of the hive. And you kind of span it out so it looks like a skirt. And apparently this works quite well as a wind barrier. And I will post the picture on my website. You can also add insulation using foam panels, tar paper, or a custom wrap. The hives with a gable style roof has a space between the top bars and the very base of the roof. And so you can fill that with insulation at this time. In terms of feeding, how much is enough? How many stores are enough for your bees to get through winter? Hemingway suggests that if your colony has not completely filled their hive with the cluster space and honey stores, so you have empty space after the honey, you should consider feeding them. And by feeding them, we're obviously talking about some kind of fondant or bee candy. Now, I thought it was interesting that Hemingway points out that many people, so this is anecdotes, but it's important. Many people have found that their top bar colonies seem to need less honey to get through winter than their Langstroth colonies. But what does that mean? What does less honey mean? And how are we as new beekeepers or new to top bar hive style beekeepers, how do we know what's enough? And so Hemingway very helpfully says that six to eight full frames of honey seems to be a good amount for winter, even in areas where it can get quite cold. So if by late summer moving into fall, they don't have that six to eight full frames of honey, start feeding them. 
If you had taken honey from this hive, you can give it back to them if that's what you want to do. Or you could feed them a 2-1 sugar syrup. So two parts sugar to one part water, as long as it's warm enough. So you still want night temperatures to be above 50 degrees Fahrenheit during the fall in order to feed syrup. Going into winter, the only food you can put in that hive is some kind of fondant or bee candy. It needs to be solid. And there are ways that you can do this, which are pretty ingenious. So one way is you can actually attach it to a follower board using wire or rubber bands, or you can buy special feeders that slide into the hive just like comb does. And I'll post a picture of this on the website. Hemingway sells these on her website. And um, I think other companies sell something similar as well. Hemingway also very helpfully offers you a bee candy recipe in this part of the book. So if you want to make it yourself at home, you can do so. In terms of preparing your top bar hive, make sure the follower boards contain the brood cluster area and the honey stores, but no empty bars. Hemingway doesn't recommend switching frames around at this late stage. So hopefully the bees know what they're doing and they have organized their hive appropriately. If you had to move honey frames, that should have been done by this point. Top bars should all be touching to make a solid roof above the nest cavity, no gaps. If your hive had an adjustable bottom board, move it up into the winter closed position. If it doesn't fit closely and you're worried about drafts getting in, you can use weather stripping or even just tape it up to close the gaps. Gable or peaked roofs can be stuffed filled with uh, stuffed full with insulation. And Hemingway recommends that you strap down the roof and you secure it to the ground. A nylon strap and a spring clip is recommended for this. And again, I'll post a picture from the book on my website. Close all but one entrance and make sure not to seal it with any wrap used. Your bees absolutely must be able to get out the hive for their cleansing flights on mild days and you need to apply a mouse guard Hemingway recommends getting quarter inch hardware cloth cutting a little square of it and just nailing it over the entrance hole this section I think is especially important and it's called preserving the propolis seal and we ask ourselves this every year when do we stop inspecting and Hemingway has a very helpful suggestion and it's to look to the propolis so in spring and summer, the propolis, that gooey um, tree sap that they use to seal cracks, it's very soft and it's gooey in the spring and the summer. But later in the season, as temperatures start to drop, it becomes brittle. And when you separate the bars, you can hear it snap or pop. In Maine, which is where Hemingway lives, the brittle popping stage starts around the middle of October and she says it's best not to disturb the colony once you have reached this stage. To quote her, best to stop when the propolis pops. So let's say you've done all this, you've overwintered, you've got through winter and now it's spring. So in temperatures above 48 degrees Fahrenheit, you might see some of the bees out and about check the entrance of the hive, make sure it isn't blocked by any bees that passed over the winter. You can take a quick peek at this time in the observation window, but keep in mind that the cluster could be so small that it's hard to really see them. 
On a still sunny day above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, you can take a quick look at the food store end of the hive to check their food supply and add fondant or dry sugar as needed. When the daily temperatures are above 50 degrees Fahrenheit and forage is available in your area, and so you're seeing your bees coming and going with their little pollen pants, this would be the time that you remove the wrap, the insulation and the mouse guard. When night temperatures are regularly above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, open additional entrances as needed and lower the adjustable bottom board for better ventilation. And she has a last section here on April specifically, which Hemingway calls the cruelest month in beekeeping. Your colony might have survived the winter only to fail at this time of year. If it's warm enough to offer syrup, she says go ahead. They will use it if they need it and they'll ignore it if they don't. Conversely, a strong colony might be ready to swarm by May. So this is the time to watch closely for signs that a colony who just came out of winter like gangbusters might be preparing to reproduce. By May, if your bees survived the winter and are building up again, you did it. Success. And to quote Hemingway, I collect overwintering success stories. If you'd like to share yours with me, you can write me. And you can reach Christy Hemingway at info at goldstarhoneybees, all one word, dot com. And I will drop that in the episode description and on my website. Chapter eight, treasures of the hive. What are the treasures of the hive? Honey and beeswax. So when and how much to harvest? Hemingway has a very pithy little quote here that I love. It's not about the honey, honey. It's about the bees. And so what she means by this is that it's often recommended that you don't harvest honey from first year hives because it's really about building their strength to get them through that first hard winter. But occasionally they might go full force into the nectar flow and you could take a small harvest. Learning to identify the likelihood of whether they can replenish their stores in time for winter takes experience, time and a good sense of your local climate and forage. As there's no foundation used in top bar hives, you're going to end up with cut comb honey where you basically just store it as it is, cut it off the bar, put it in containers or you can crush and strain the honeycomb to separate out all of that delicious honey. If you do a crush and strain, then you end up with a double harvest. You end up with that lovely liquid honey and all of that wax. Now, Hemingway sells a simple two bucket system on her website for easily crushing and straining honey, but she also gives instructions on how to make your own. And I'll drop a link for that in the episode description. To quote Hemingway, I recommend against using plastic bottles for honey, partly because glass is a cleaner, more benign material, but also because of the risk of introducing bisphenol A into your very clean, natural honey. So if you're jarring it, glass jars. You always have the option to store honey or full comb as food to just give back to the hive in times of nectar dearth or to help shore up their winter stores. And that might be something that you consider doing. Hemingway then has a little section on remedies from honey and venom. So for instance, pollen allergies, it's long been said, can be helped if you have seasonal allergies by consuming the local raw honey. 
Honey is wonderful for wounds and burns. It's a natural antiseptic, antifungal and antibiotic. And then she talks a little bit about apitherapy or bee venom therapy, which is where you are purposely stung by bees in areas in order to help with pain and inflammation. People with arthritis have tried this before. And I just want to add a note here. There is no scientific support that apitherapy works. And I know people are going to be upset by this. I know a ton of people who think that it's a cure-all. And there is a lot of anecdata out there, people swearing by it. But it has been tested rigorously by a number of different researchers. And basically right now, it seems that it's a placebo effect. If you think it will work, you'll feel better. But there's no actual physical mechanism at this time that has been discovered that indicates that it does anything. And then lastly, just a little bit about beeswax here. Hemingway does discuss methods where you can render it down and strain it safely, highlighting that it's highly flammable and so always safety first. She personally recommends using it to make candles. They burn cleanly. They have a lovely natural smell. And she also offers a really neat little recipe for making a salve or a cream from it. And she ends the chapter with a little quote here. These treasures of the hive are some of the most valuable things that bees offer to humanity. And I just love that. So chapter nine, bee pests and diseases. And we start with prevention. The best thing to do is start with healthy bees. And so Hemingway recommends sourcing packages from chemical-free apiaries. She mentions that if you go with swarms, they are total unknowns. You don't know their genetics, you don't know their health. It doesn't mean don't do it, but just keep that in mind. Cleanliness. Clean your hive tool between hives. Don't take used equipment or clothing to another beekeeper's apiary and don't let them bring used equipment or clothing to your apiary. Be tidy. Keep your apiary area neat. Don't leave crosscomb or propolis just laying around the hives because it can attract other bees who might inadvertently bring some disease or infection. Inspect regularly. Be on top of things. Know what's going on inside your hives. Know what's happening with your colony. And learn the signs and symptoms of diseases and pests so that you can spot them when they occur. Now, this section goes into sort of... um, a fair amount of detail about various diseases and viruses. So what I really liked is that she includes clear photographs to help you learn what to look for. And each overview is about a page and I'm not going to run through it all. I've had previous episodes which talk about various bee diseases. So I'm just going to say that she lists um, the following. American fowl brood, European fowl brood, sac brood virus, deformed wing virus, chalk brood, wax moths, small hive beetle, nosema, tracheal mites and varroa mites. And here's a little note on the varroa section from me. Hemingway recommends a drop count method for determining the level of varroa mite infestation. So basically sprinkling them with powdered sugar and then looking at a bottom board and counting how many mites are in each like square inch to determine mite infestation. However, this method has been found to be largely inaccurate when compared to methods such as a sugar shake and an alcohol wash. As far as I can tell through reading the most recent studies on the subject, the alcohol wash method is the most accurate in terms of getting 
the best varroa mite infestation count. In this book, Hemingway also recommends treating varroa with the powdered sugar dusting, claiming that it will cause the bees to groom the mites off them. What she doesn't address is, but what about mites in the brood cells? So we know that mites reproduce in drone cells specifically. And so I went to her website looking for more information on what she recommends for varroa treatments, because this book has been out for a while now, and I'm sure she has probably come up with other methods of treatment. And I will say that what she lists on her website are all chemical free and they're nothing that I've ever heard of before. So for instance, she recommends using thyme oil, uh, which I assume is due to the presence of thymol, which is the active ingredient in apigard. Personally, I would recommend using apigard over you trying to make your own thyme oil solution because thyme oil, any essential oil, they're not all created equal. And also I would worry about potentially getting the ratio wrong of the thyme oil to water and Apigard has gone through testing. So it just seems like that's a safer bet. Hemingway also recommends feeding the bees a garlic and sugar water solution. And I googled garlic as a treatment for varroa and I found one study that indicated that garlic has an up to 51% reduction in varroa mites when used in this kind of solution. Although I will say that the researchers used garlic essential oil, not fresh crushed cloves, which is what Hemingway recommends. And I don't know if that would be a difference. So I'm going to link to that paper that I found in the episode description and on my website. I'll also add that when I attended one of Hemingway's talks about top bar hive beekeeping, she did recommend using oxalic acid applied through the dribble method in the spring. So I suspect that this book was published before she decided to use this treatment because oxalic acid is considered organic because it is naturally found in honey. It's naturally occurring in honey. She also covered kind of quickly some additional issues such as um, mice, bears, skunks, opossums, raccoons and ants, all of which you might have in your area and, and might be of consideration. And now we get to the afterwards and I want to include this because I think it's important. So Hemingway states that she used to be a zealot. So she believed that top bar hives are... Um, and that chemical beekeeping were the only way. So she got into it full force. She was like, my way is the best way and all other methods were evil and wrong. And now she does still believe that chemical free beekeeping leads to healthier bees long-term, but she also sees the bigger picture and she's met enough beekeepers, whether they're you know, moving hives to California for almond pollination or producing packages of bees on a large scale or just people with one or two hives in their backyard that she doesn't see other methods as evil or wrong anymore and what's become increasingly clear to her over time is the connection between beekeeping bees and our broken food system including current agricultural methods government politics systemic pesticides GMOs and the effect that all of these combined can have on honeybees and other pollinators. So to quote her, 
The analogy of the honeybee as a modern day canary in a coal mine was suddenly completely apropos and drove home the point that colony collapse disorder was not just another bee pest or disease, but a symptom of a much larger interrelated problem. And I also really like the final paragraph of this book, so I'm just going to quote it in its entirety. Repairing our agricultural practices, practicing treatment-free beekeeping, eschewing the use of pesticides, spending our food dollars appropriately and restoring respect for all of the natural systems required for the planet to sustain itself and us. These are the way forward. And after taking those steps, we will soon realize that we didn't have to find a cure for colony collapse disorder. We just had to quit causing it. At the very end of the book, you will find all citations so you can double check things, read them for yourself, a handy dandy glossary, Appendix A, which has a sample hive inspection diagram, and Appendix B, which is wonderful. It's all bee resources. So she lists books, movies, websites, magazines, research organizations, beekeeper associations, etc. It's really good. And I want to close out this with my personal thoughts on The Thinking Beekeeper by Christy Hemingway. Overall, this is a cracking little book on how to get started with top bar hives. The photographs, though they're in black and white, are so clear and they really allow the reader to understand what to look for and therefore what to expect. As I stated before, the chapter on hive inspections is the crowning jewel of the book. Those diagrams make it so much easier to visualise all of this how-to information and it offers additional benefits to those who are primarily visual learners. Hemingway's passion for bees and beeswax is apparent on every page and it's this passion that first interested me in her work. Her focus on chemical contamination of wax seems to me to be a critical issue that is often overlooked in beekeeping. Between pesticides on the food bees bring back to the hive and feed to their brood and the miticides that we use in an attempt to control varroa mites, we often don't consider the level of contamination that can exist within our hives. Varroa treatments are categorised in terms of safe when honey supers are on or not. There's not really a lot of discussion amongst hobbyists about how much remains in the wax after treatment. And I've personally started marking frames with fall or early winter honey when I've had to apply a treatment before winter shutdown. And so I have concerns that the honey and the frames are potentially contaminated. But how many other beekeepers do the same? And how many of us are actually cleaning our frames by removing all the wax every few years and encouraging the bees to produce more? And even with the wax removed, could the plastic foundation or the wooden frame be contaminated? And I just don't know, and I'm not sure if anyone knows. So that's something to consider. Hemingway draws apt comparisons between all the factors of our modern farming and agriculture and the horror of colony collapse disorder. Even with her brief summaries of these issues, you can clearly see how saving the bees does not end with simply keeping them in our apiaries. We need to look at the whole system of how we eat, how we tend our gardens and what we put into our hives. Now, like many chemical-free books and methods, I'm torn on the treatment methods for Varroa that are discussed briefly in this book. 
as I said before, I'm not convinced that just giving them powdered sugar, garlic water or thymol in the form of thyme essential oil is enough. I'm just not convinced of their efficacy based on what I found. And it does trouble me a little to imagine new beekeepers following these methods and then struggling with my infestations both in their own apiaries and potentially introducing my infestations into their community. The basis of chemical free is not wrong. And I really want to highlight that because I know I can come down a little hard on alternative treatments. It's not wrong. Thomas Seeley outlined the importance of bees being allowed to develop resistance over time. But as I have discussed, even Seeley points out that unless you are far enough away from other apiaries to avoid potentially infesting them with Varroa from your colonies, you have a responsibility to treat effectively for mites. And I really believe that this issue isn't as simple as chemical free versus chemical, or as some people put it, science versus natural. There are so many things we have to consider before we choose a treatment method. With all that said, I think you can get a good foundation of knowledge by relying on Seeley's Darwinian beekeeping methods, which is discussed in his book, The Lives of Bees, and then supplementing that knowledge with books just like this from Christy Hemingway. I really hope that you enjoyed this book, that it's helpful for you, that you can take from it those things that you need and expand on other things. I want you to dig in. You know, if you think that the method that she mentions for Varroa might work, you know, definitely give them a go. I am not an expert on this. If you're concerned about it, look into the studies, dig around a little bit more. And I hope overall that the message that we all get from a book like this, aside from the how-to guide and the why-to of it all, is overall, what are we putting into our colonies And are we working to build strong colonies and bettering the bees? Or are we not? Are we just about the honey and we're not caring about the bees? Are we just about whatever is quick and easy and works fast? Or are we thinking bigger? Are we thinking long term? And the fact that Hemingway can produce a book that can guide you in management of your hive and then make you ask these questions is really extraordinary. And so I recommend to anyone, and I will recommend to everyone, pick up this book, get it from your library, buy it yourself, put it on your wish list, and hopefully someone will gift it to you. It is definitely worth a read. And in comparison to some other top bar beekeeping books I've gone through, I went through a Les Crowder book in a previous episode I do feel that this one is a better overall guide in a large part because of those diagrams. I think she just puts a little bit more time into really guiding you through this first year. And so if you had to choose between the two, I would say get Hemingway's book first. And then if you can grab Crowder's book as well, because he also has a lot of beneficial insights to share with us all. And that's it. So I really hope you enjoyed this overall. I hope you found it beneficial and I hope you'll consider picking up this book. As always, as I stated previously, I'll have photos on my website and I'll list links of various important things mentioned today in the episode description. Now, this is the part of the podcast where I give some personal updates and so for anyone who doesn't want to listen to me talk about mental health issues or just kind of 
general stuff going on here that isn't directly related to the homestead now would be the time for to sign off and I say thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll join me again in two weeks take care of yourselves okay personal news so if you stuck around you want to hear me blather on and navel gaze and all that kind of stuff so real quick on my last episode I talked about my med change I increased my anti-anxiety and I was transitioning off um Lexapro and onto Prozac and I had all this energy for like three to four days well it didn't last folks that energy blast that I got didn't last I actually slept a lot last week it was a stressful week losing two chickens having Luna go in for her dental and a few other things going on and I think that combined with the med change led to me I just had to sleep I had to sleep in the middle of the day every day And my husband noticed and he's so awesome. He checked in with me. You know, he's just like, I noticed you're napping a lot. How are you feeling? Is everything okay? And that just made me feel especially supported and loved. And I'm optimistic this week that now I'm off Lexapro and I'm fully on the Prozac at the appropriate dose. I'm hoping that I will not need to nap quite as much because I have things that I want to do. Speaking of my husband being incredible and supporting me, he is forcing me to go on vacation. And I know this is a weird thing to say, but I have a hard time leaving the homestead. And the reason why is because I have anxiety and I'm a control freak. I often fall into thinking that no one can care for all of these animals, all of this property like I can. And it's very hard for me to relinquish control to someone else so that I can leave it all behind and go on vacation. But my husband rightly pointed out that we are long overdue and we deserve it. And so at the end of July, early August, we will be disappearing into the North Carolina mountains for some totally unplugged couple time. We actually splurged on a luxury cabin or home it's high up in the mountains it's stunning the photographs make me feel peaceful just looking at them the views are outstanding and we're planning on spending our days hiking and then coming home and just relaxing and soaking in all of that incredible view and just being together so um I do appreciate him pushing me out of my comfort zone and making sure that I get downtime I think we do really need it and kind of in that vein, I'm trying really hard to be grateful and positive. I think that with the medication changes that I've been going through and just kind of this last year with the pandemic and, you know, severing relationship with my father and the court case going on in England and me worrying about people back there and everything, I my anxiety has been pretty bad and it's really easy if you have anxiety to focus on negatives. You can get really wrapped up on this is wrong with the world and this is wrong with this and you can spiral and so lately I've been trying to if I experience a moment where I feel joy or love or awe I really try and make a note of it and be present so like the other day I'd been weeding in the heat and I was soaked with sweat and exhausted and I came in cooled off grabbed a cup of coffee sat out on the deck Chappie, my whippet, came to lie on the bed next to me. He immediately fell asleep. His face was so peaceful. The breeze started and I'm just out on my deck 
looking at my property with my little man by my side, drinking a cup of coffee. And it was beautiful. And I'm just trying to lean into those moments and try and be a more positive thinker. So that's where I am. Um, Also, oh, total side note. Now that we've got to this point where you don't have to wear masks anymore, you will still find me in a mask. And it's got nothing to do with COVID. I haven't had a cold since wearing masks became commonplace. And so if I'm going into a crowded space now, you can bet your ass I'm wearing a mask because I would love to keep avoiding getting colds and sinus infections and all these other things I used to get. So I'm sorry, I'm going to be one of those crazy mask people moving forward. Like when we went to the Reptile Expo yesterday, I wore my mask, even though I didn't have to. And I just feel like that and washing my hands all the time so carefully probably helped with that. And I am, I'm grateful. That's great. I don't want a cold. So I hope everyone out there is doing well. That's all that's going on with me. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next for my next episode. I think probably kind of a relaxed fit, getting into a bit deeper dive of what I'm doing here, what I'm seeing on the homestead, um, more issues that I've had, kind of digging a little deeper into those and what I'm doing about it, maybe sharing some more like individual animal stories. So more tales about the chickens and the dogs and all that kind of stuff. Just something a bit more casual, um, unless something grabs my interest and I end up doing a deep dive into it. Either way, I really hope that you will join me again in two weeks. I'm so grateful to all of you for listening and making this podcast what it is. I would probably still be talking this much about bees, even if you weren't here. But the fact that you are just makes me tremendously happy. So thank you so much. And I'll leave you as I always do. Remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye.